I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi there, and welcome back to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. If you're new here, oh my gosh, welcome. I'm so glad you made it. There is such a vast and rich backlog of episodes. Please go check them out while you're driving to appointments, while you're sitting in the waiting room, while you're up at 4 a.m. because of you know what. There's family stories. There's interviews with doctors and researchers and counselors, therapists, ideas for self-care. There's biweekly episodes where I kind of just take you through my own journey in little short bits. The once a month storytelling episodes are absolute gold. So please check it out. Uh, Send me a message if you have any questions or feedback for me. I'd love to hear from you. My episode today is just a really deep and feel good, honest conversation with my friend who I actually got to meet in person last spring in Ohio. She is beautiful inside and out. And I'm hoping I can wrangle her into doing a couple co-hosted episodes with me here in the future. So I'm excited for you to meet her. She's a beautiful mom to Lenny, who has Charge Syndrome. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Please welcome Alyssa Paskarbowitz. Hi, Alyssa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Effie. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. I actually got to meet you in real life and not at a conference, but on a random trip to Columbus, Ohio. And you lived there and we got to meet and it was honestly like one of my most special rare mama meetups. Yes, the, the feeling is mutual. That was, um, you're actually the first medical rare mama I've met in real life and got to like hug and hold. And that was just very special to me as well. Yeah. So for those who maybe remember you or haven't yet, you did a storytelling episode back on episode 139 with the theme, Remember Who You Are, and your story was so phenomenal, and I got so many messages about it. So when you're done with this episode, I highly recommend going back to episode number 139 and listening to Alyssa tell a little short story. So, okay, give us a little background, Alyssa. Tell us about your beautiful daughter, Lenny, and about your family. Yeah, so I'll start um, with, I guess, our son. So we have a six-year-old son named Lyle. And he was our first child. And then actually before Lenny too, I guess I can kind of back up. We were pregnant a second time um, with another boy. And unfortunately, we lost him halfway through the pregnancy. And I think that's kind of for us where, you know, we started to really realize that things don't always go great or perfectly and things can happen. And then when we got pregnant the third time, 
with our daughter, Lenny. You know, we, we didn't know anything really prenatally. There was nothing that came up during her 20-week ultrasound, but there was something for me that just felt off and it didn't feel right. And I wasn't sure if that was, you know, just because of the anxiety from our loss or if this was something different. But I ended up having a referral put into MFM. And it was that that appointment around 26, 27 weeks that they did find a kind of rare heart defect. It was minor at the time I was told, you know, this is probably isolated. There's probably nothing else with it. We've done a full anatomy scan. Everything else looks good. And then around 33 weeks, I started to look very, very pregnant and, you know, just kind of had these feelings that the baby would come soon. And sure enough, I had gone out of town on a girls weekend with my best friends from high school. And on that trip, my water broke at just shy of 34 weeks. So we're driving home. And of course, you know, I'm on the phone with my OB and my friends dropped me off at the doors of the hospital because it was right in the peak of COVID at that time. So they were not allowed to come in with me. And, you know, my husband then came and met me at the hospital. We had my OB and MFM there. They did another kind of scan real quickly, said everything looks good. This was isolated. I was told that I was likely giving birth to a healthy child in the morning. And sure enough, after our daughter was born, she came out not breathing and uh, she was very difficult for them to intubate. So right away, they could tell that something wasn't quite right with her airway. They took her and immediately transported her to the local children's hospital. And a couple of days later, I was able to go and see her for the first time and hold her. But it was really in those first couple of days that they started noticing a lot of different kind of medical anomalies and things that we did not know about prenatally, starting kind of like with kidney issues and then some other minor things too. They also found that her nasal passages were completely blocked. And at that point, a geneticist kind of came to us and said, you know, I have a suspicion just from a clinical diagnosis alone that she has CHARGE syndrome. So that kind of set us on our upcoming journey of what involved a very long NICU stay, multiple surgeries, and a lot from there, I guess. Ugh, I'm so sorry about your loss of your middle child. And how dare Lenny ruin a girl's weekend like that? <laughs> you know, that that's interesting to me that you said the geneticist like knew that it was charge. Were all of these symptoms like so specific to charge that it shows up like in color like that for her? Or had she had experience with that? Because that seems wild that a geneticist would have known the diagnosis from those things. Yeah. So I guess some of the the first things that they found, as far as the heart defects, so she, our daughter had a right aortic, aortic arch and with a vascular ring. There are a couple of different genetic diagnoses that you typically see with that. One of them is CHARGE syndrome. I think another one is like 22Q. And then the single kidney, finding out that she had one kidney and the coanal atresia, which is the blockage of the nasal passages. And that alone is usually very common in um, kids with CHARGE syndrome. So that was sort of the initial thing. And that's when then they said, we need to order a hearing and vision screening because it's common for them to be born with different, like varying degrees of deaf blindness too. So, you know, we actually had gotten the call. We were at home trying to get our son situated before we went to the hospital. And that's when we got the call about the blocked nasal passages. And so 
I think I just knew right then. I said, this is the third thing. Something isn't right. And I asked on the phone and they said, yes, we believe it's charge syndrome, but you should come down to the hospital so we can talk further about it. And of course I did the one thing that like they tell you not to do, but you can't help as a parent. And that is immediately Google because I had never, I had never heard of charge syndrome. I did not know it was a thing that I should be aware of or that can happen. Just like most parents with all the different genetic conditions that they can have. So it was then from there that they started finding a bunch of other things too in the in the next couple months. So I didn't really realize that Lenny came during COVID, but I guess that makes sense. Something I really appreciate that you do, and I'm really grateful, and I know a lot of other parents are, is that you really share a lot of your day-to-day and of the health journey with Lenny on Instagram. And I know that that's a personal decision, right? Like that's personal for every family to decide whether or not to share our our rare disease journeys. And I get a lot of questions from families. In fact, I've gotten several even recently asking how you come to that decision and do you have concerns about sharing your personal story or Lenny's story or your son's story online? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And I and I agree. I think it's personal for everybody. And I think that you just have to sort of be at peace and comfortable with what you want to share. I go back and forth and even, you know, in the two and a half years of Lenny's life, I have shifted at times. There are times where I feel the desire and need to share for me personally. And then there are times where I need to like kind of back away for a couple of days. And I've noticed too, that sometimes I'll have people reaching out when I'm not sharing just to make sure everything's okay. But I think I, I found for me, I need those personal breaks from it. And that can either be things are really good and I'm just trying to enjoy where we're at, or sometimes those breaks are things are really, really hard and I don't know how to open up and begin to talk about it. And I think for, you know, I was not somebody that really shared much of anything outside of like our close friends. And that was, you know, in personal conversations prior to Lenny being born, I didn't need the level of support I think that I do this time around. And this journey has looked so much different for us in our parenting and what is now a caregiver role than it did with our son. I had friends that had kids around the same time we had our first son when we had Lyle. And we could always, you know, connect and talk about the things that were challenging and the things that brought us joy in motherhood. And when Lenny was born, I didn't know anyone that had that same experience. I didn't have a friend that had a child in the NICU or was born with, you know, a lot of very serious medical concerns or a rare genetic diagnosis. Like I didn't have anyone. And I'll never forget one of the first conversations after Lenny was diagnosed in the NICU, we had a couple of specialists and they had assigned us with a with a psychologist, which has ended up being one of our biggest support systems in within the hospital. And they said to us, they're like, do you know anybody that has a child with a disability or with medical needs? And I said, no. And they're like, well, it might be good for you to have a good support system of friends and, you know, outside of just your friends and family, if you don't know anyone. And at the time, I kind of was like, we have such a great support system. We have excellent friends. They're already like showing up in big ways for us. Same with our family. I didn't think, I truly did not think at the time that we would need additional support or a new community. And 
I very quickly realized how wrong I was about that because I started seeking, you know, through social media. I found podcasts like yours, Effie. I found other medical families also within our charge syndrome community too. And I quickly realized how important that connection was because as much as I've wanted friends and family to be able to relate and connect with, the reality is they can't. And finding this community of other families of rare kiddos has been really helpful for me in that. And it's allowed me to want to open up and share more because for me, it it really has become a survival tool. Oh my gosh. So much that you said there. I have so many thoughts about it. And thank you for that thoughtful and just perfect answer to that. I guess kind of at the beginning of that, yes, personal choice. And I love that you said that people check on you when you're not posting, right? And it could be for good reasons or for hard reasons. I definitely resonate with that and kind of have the same experience. I don't feel obligated to share everything. And I do decide which things I don't share, right? Like I'm not going to share Ford's bathroom history online. You know, like there's things that I keep private that I don't share with people because I think that that is Ford's dignity. And But as you also said, the isolation, right? And having to find people like you. I also had a similar experience. The early intervention was here, like, you know, Ford's two and a half months old. And she goes, there's a local family here that I think you would totally get along with. Do you want to meet her? And I was like, oh, my gosh, no. I'm sure she's crazy. And I have friends. And whoa, was I in for a rude awakening. Because like you said, they are our friends and we love them wholeheartedly and they will be with us forever. But like they will never fully get it. They will just it, it is impossible. And to to find the people that can walk through this with you is the lifeline that you actually like really have to grab onto because you can't do it alone. And you need all of these stories and all of these kinds of pillars to help guide you, even if you're just dipping in without them knowing. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. My friend Jennifer Seidman, who you've probably heard on the show, and she works at the Courageous Parents Network. One of her pieces of advice that she gives new families is find your withs, your withs. And those are the people that not are just dropping off dinner and checking in on you, but that are with you, that you can call in the middle of the night or text in the middle of the night or do whatever, who will constantly be with you and are on this journey as a fellow medical parent. And you have to have them. Yeah, that is such a great way to put it, the WIS who are going to. And I and I think there's something to that because you do have the people that you know are there, but there are also the people that will sit with you in whatever it is you're feeling and experiencing. And I think for a lot of people in general, that is a very hard thing to do is to sit through the pain and the darkness because we have it. You know, we our days are not easy and some things are really just heart-wrenching at times, especially when you're admitted in the hospital or going through surgery. You need those people that are going to actually sit there with you, even though it's uncomfortable for them. Exactly. Yeah. She explains it a lot better. I'm sure I obliterated it. But yes, exactly what you said are the people who will sit with you in, in that kind of gunk. One of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the show is because of these phenomenal posts that you make that I just like always slow down and really pay attention to when you post. But back in November, you posted something that was like, it just really struck me. And I think so many of us can relate. And I'm just going to read a little snippet because it was a fairly large post. But something you said in there was this. While spending the majority of the first year admitted in the hospital, I thought that was survival mode. But most days now still feel that way. It just still feels that way. It just shifted and we've adapted so much. 
but I don't think we really recognize the intensity. We're operating on the day-to-day until it hits the maxed out threshold. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. This second year of our daughter's life has been where I've started to kind of delve into the processing of everything that happened that first year. And, you know, so we had a 101 day NICU stay and then our daughter was discharged. And when you bring a child home from the NICU with very intense medical needs, really you don't leave the NICU. It just comes home to you. Only you don't have the care team that you had during your time there. So when we brought our daughter home, while it was like a joyous experience because, yay, we're bringing her home, we're completing our family, we're all going to be together, we lost all the hands and doctors that were helping out in the day today. And it was just my husband and I, the only two that could care for her. And at the time, her medical needs were very significant. We did not sleep. We were up all night. We were monitoring her all day and intervening. And then... Six weeks after she was home, she was scheduled for a surgery, the the heart repair, in which we were told she'd be there for about three to five days. And it turned into a six-week admission where they found some other things. We ended up having another surgery. We were discharged and then went back two weeks later for another three-week surgery admission. And then after that, we had some other ones too. So we ended up spending after our NICU stay, about 12 and a half weeks admitted in the hospital afterwards in just that first year of her life. And so, you know, at the time we're like, this is survival mode. We are sleeping on, we're taking turns sleeping on a cot in a hospital room. We are advocating fiercely in the hospital. We are concerned. We are worried. Like we are just trying to survive. And we were doing that while juggling our son and having to go back and forth. And it was a very challenging and heart-wrenching time for us. And I thought that was survival mode. We were surviving. And it, it was, it very much was. But I think what was really surprising to me was that when things started to slow down and once she was home and has been more medically stable this second year, in some ways it's been a lot harder. I've learned that like there's an element, I think, and I think we all kind of thrive in some way in survival mode because what other choice do you have? Like, but to keep moving you don't really have time to like break down to process what's happening. You're just trying to literally get through it. And so all of my time and energy was put into both my kids, keeping Lenny alive and safe, you know, while balancing the needs of our son and my husband and I trying to just kind of, you know, figure things out. And now I realize though that that level of intensity that we were operating before is still there. And to some extent, it just looks different and it's happening at home. And so I think because we were thrown into such a high intensity situation in the beginning, we almost forget that we're still managing and doing so much at home. So, you know, when it comes to our daughter's medical care, supervision, hospital appointments, you know, we're, we're doing five to six therapies a week for her that we're shuffling back and forth from. We're on the phone with the lovely DME companies and insurance and fighting for services. And you're just constantly moving. We're researching things that we can do to help. You're trying to learn more to help your children. And I don't think that we ever actually got out of survival mode. And I think that's been a big reality for me is that we're still there in it. It just looks a little bit different. And I don't think a lot of people that aren't in our world or in this community understand that because I think if they see us at the hospital, they think that's the hardest. And that's when things are really challenging and difficult. 
but we also are experiencing the hard at home. And there's a lot that we don't share. And Effie, I mean, you touched on this too. Like there are certain things you won't share about Ford. And I've made a point too, to adjust and do the same. So I'm not sharing the really hard moments that are happening at home with our daughter. I'm not sharing the intense medical trauma that she experiences every time we go back for an appointment. I'm just not talking about it, you know? And so I feel like we're kind of always in this, this survival mode to some extent. Oh my gosh. I feel so seen right now. <laughs> you explained that so, so perfectly. And I think that a lot of us can relate to sort of finally deciding or coming to a place maybe that second year of where we actually address a little bit of the trauma, right? Yeah. And where we finally feel like, oh, okay, maybe things are supposed to be a little more normal now. But you're right. You absolutely never get normal and you never are out of that crisis mode. In fact, we will be in this crisis mode forever. It just looks different, especially to the outside world when you're not inpatient. People think you're doing good. People think it's great, but they don't still really understand all of the things that you're juggling practically with medical appointments and all of the things that you mentioned, but also the emotional stuff and the internal stuff and the future stuff and the ambiguity of it all. And that it's constantly swirling around. You have just figured out how to be like some sort of scarlet witch and hold all of them like in the sky. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, I think that's like, those are the skills that you develop when you're in the hospital and you're going through like such fast paced decision-making and traumatic events. You kind of get that, but then it's like when you come home and you get a little bit of slowdown, I don't know how to slow down. I've realized the second year, wow, like I actually, I thrive in survival mode, even though I recognize that's not sustainable, I do better. And it's like, if I have a moment to slow down and think about everything that has happened or everything that we're doing, or the things like you mentioned, it's the future stuff for me that that holds a lot of space right now and a lot of fears and a lot of concerns. And especially the older, as Lenny gets older, that's going to take up more space for me. And so it's in those moments where it's like, yeah, it it doesn't stop. Like, the way that we operate in the day-to-day is not the same as I ever had to operate with our son. It's not the same. No. Have you ever heard about the book called Emotional Agility from Susan David? I have, and that is on my list of something to read. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It has become like one of my go-to like Bibles, okay? Like the stuff she talks about is so relevant to the change in our direction and our lives. Um, important for everyone, like definitely go read this book. But I dip back into it on a regular basis. She talks about so many things like that, right? And becoming emotionally agile and realizing that our emotions are real. Any of them are good and not any of them are bad. But the difference is when you become rigid and when you get stuck and when you can't react or respond appropriately, right? But realizing that emotions are just a part of everything and they're okay to have and to really just let them flow through you as they are and maybe learn something from it at the time if you can. But I have really, really taken this book on as like a practice because even if I get into that moment, right, where like maybe I'm stuck, maybe someone has said something to me that has activated something that I thought was fixed. And so I'll just go there and I'll think about it. And I will go back to what I've learned about responding to the, those things. Like just last weekend, I was on a trip with my best friend in the whole world who has been by my side no matter what. But she said something that I would normally have gotten 
really hurt by. And she didn't mean it like that, you know. She just commented on how great it looked to be out with Ford and that how easy he was and that this wasn't really that hard at all. And, you know, I just normally I would have I would have been reactive and I would have been hurt and I would have cried and it would have sat with me forever. But I just thought in that moment, you know what? I have stories about this. I know what I'm right about. I know the truth, but I just really don't have to do that right now. And I can accept that she knows her part and I know my part and we can just enjoy this moment. Whereas before, I don't think I could have done that. Do you think that you've kind of grown to a place where you can have moments where people make comments or situations that you're in that before would have crumbled you? And is there a way that you find your way out of them now or that you can sit with them now? I just talked for a really long time because I was thinking through that. But does that make sense? Yeah, no, it it does make sense. And I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there where like this is a practice and it takes, I think, a long time to get to. And I think sometimes even in practice, like we do a better job of it depending on where we are at that moment in time than we would maybe in another situation. So I, I started trauma therapy and processing therapy back last fall and did that for a full year. And I found that to be tremendously helpful for me because I was very easily getting triggered too by comments that weren't intended to be hurtful, but they were for me. And I started noticing a lot more and it would, you know, kind of eat at me a little bit. And I think I've definitely made a lot of progress this past year and kind of letting those things slide. And it's it's definitely something I'm still needing to work towards. And I think I probably will be for a long time. And I think a lot of it does have to do with where are we right now? Like, am I in a good place? Am I, you, you know, how is our daughter doing? That also kind of, for me, changes the way that I respond to different things. And sometimes I can just let it brush off and I don't think anything of it. And then there are other times where, you know, it will strike me a little bit and I'll have to have a conversation with my husband about it in the evening just to vent. It just depends on on where I am. Totally. I think that there's always going to be like some form of emotional leakage for lack of a better term. And I think that's normal, right? Like we're not robots, we're human beings. Right. But I do believe that we're capable to show up to our emotions, strong or not, and like really be compassionate with ourselves and have some acceptance and use them as information instead of directives sometimes, right? And like you said, it's a practice. And it's an absolutely imperative one because I think all of us have seen the other side of what can happen to a medical parent if they get stuck. Yes. It's it's the getting stuck that I think becomes problematic. And I think for me too, it, so the whole concept of like this duality of emotions that you can feel lots of different things. And even within one single moment, I think just the ability to acknowledge what is it that you're feeling right now has been so helpful for me. Because I think for so long, I tried to feel certain ways or I felt guilt or shame in the way that I was maybe feeling. So for example, there are moments now that are, you know, really great moment. You know, Lenny's doing well and we're having a great time as a family on an outing and I'm feeling a lot of joy, but then sadness sometimes like comes up or this feeling of grief or a trauma reminder. And for a while that was really hard for me because it was like, ah, why is this happening? I shouldn't be feeling this way. Like I should just enjoy. And then that made me more anxious whenever I try to you know, diminish a feeling or anything that's arising. And so for me, I found that if I just let it come up and say, 
I'm feeling this and I'm feeling this too, that it doesn't last as long. It doesn't last as long. It comes, I acknowledge it. It's there. I can kind of hold it for a second and it's easier to let go. Oh my God. Amen. 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 I just like have this TV screen of like moments in my life of this exact thing happening. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. You know, you mentioned trauma therapy. I'm like a huge advocate of somatic therapy and I want to talk about it a little more on the show, but I'd love to know a little more about your trauma therapy, if you're okay with talking about it and which one you've explored, because I know for I know there are two, but maybe there's something different and maybe some takeaways from it that families should know about. Yeah. So I, I guess in, in to some extent, some of the therapy for me started in a not very organized way, but it started during our NICU stay. So when we were in the NICU, what was great about the children's hospital that we were in is that they assign every family gets a therapist that comes in and just kind of to check in. And I'll never forget, like she came in and she was like, so the doctors, you know, and specialists said that you and your husband are handling like this so well and you're just great. They don't think you need any support. And she came in and smiled. And I like started laughing because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course, of course you do. And she's like, that's your indication that, you know, everybody needs help and support talking through something like this. And so I first started kind of connecting with her and she would just come in casually and talk with Mark and I about the new diagnoses at the time we were receiving because I mean, throughout her NICU stay, we received over a dozen of them. Things kept coming up. And so I felt like we kept just kind of getting hit harder and harder and harder. And the trauma just kept being piled on. And so she would kind of just casually come in a couple of times a week when I was there with Lenny. And then that turned into her then also any time that we were in the hospital after that for all the surgeries, she would also come and stop by and just chat with us. And I started just kind of immediately feeling connected to her and just having someone in the hospital that I could talk to. And not only that, but someone that was experiencing exactly what I was because with it being COVID, nobody was allowed to be there besides Mark and I. So we didn't have family. We didn't have friends that could come to the visit and visit in the hospital and sit with us. So this person kind of held a lot in that she got to watch these traumatic moments happen in our response to them and also the good moments too. And so her and I had talked during that time period about, you know, wanting to try. She had suggested to me that I eventually start trauma therapy and look particularly at EMDR. And so she ended up leaving actually when Lenny was about a year, she took a job somewhere else and we actually still communicate her and I uh, via email, we'll send updates and stuff. We've remain connected. But I found a therapist locally and we did everything virtually for a year and started with EMDR. So just kind of that reprocessing, because at the time I was having a lot of PTSD, even when things were calm, I was not able to settle. I wasn't sleeping at all. In this medical world, I think a lot of parents can relate to the fact that like those trauma triggers like are always there because there's always some underlying trauma that keeps coming back up or reminders or anniversaries of traumatic events. And so we started with EMDR. It did several sessions of those for a couple of months, and I did find that to be very helpful. And then we kind of just moved on to processing in general. So just kind of talking through things, talking about 
this concept of emotions that come up and processing everything that's happened and how to kind of move forward. Uh, yes, thank you so much. I know EM- EMDR has been so helpful for so many. I don't know the difference completely between EMDR and somatic therapy, but I think trauma therapy in general is imperative for families like ours because this isn't going to end. This isn't just crisis mode, like you said, at the hospital. This is forever. This is forever. And most of us will be caregivers forever. And while it's not super helpful to dwell or peek so much into the future that it causes our anxiety to flare, it is something to think about for our wellness. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate it. (sighs) I mean, Alyssa, I could just talk to you about emotions and stuff all day. I really think that you are really thoughtful and I can tell that you're constantly trying to evolve, right, and show up with curiosity to how you're feeling and how you're parenting and what this journey means for your family. And I'm so thankful that you're sharing it because I know it's helping a lot of people. Even if you don't know, just know that it is. And I know it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of guts. So I'm thankful to parents like you who do that because not everyone can and that's okay. But the fact that it's there for them to lean on is so important because it's it's building a stronger community around us everywhere. So thank you. Thank you, Effie. I mean, it, it really, it's it's been you and having the platform and the podcast to connect to that's really been most helpful for me and to hear and read other people's stories of that have gone through similar things or have these similar thoughts and emotions and events. And connection is the key piece in all of this because I read something recently about how, you know, some of the biggest forms of connection are made in those like terrifying moments, those big moments. And I think there's so much truth to that. When you can hear someone else share something that they've been through that has been challenging or hard, there's an instant connection. And especially in in our world here, I think that this community really does a good job of showing up for each other and making you feel more comfortable to open up and share. And I don't, I would not have felt that if I didn't have this community and the other people before me that have been here to do that. Amen. Yes, definitely not forgetting the people who were here before us, like Jennifer Seidman, whom I mentioned earlier, like Gay Grossman, the OGs who have really kind of laid out a path for us to be able to even show up like like we are now. And we're really lucky to have the Internet and be together in the ways that they weren't. So I really, really respect families who are still on this journey, even though their kids may not be here anymore, or maybe they're older and they're not in this like fresh state, but they show up for us still because, like you said, this community is just living and breathing and thriving and everyone knows how important that connection is. Yes. And I mean, like you said, the the ones that came before us and then, you know, I, I'm only not even two and a half years into this, but like within our community with charge syndrome, like the families that more recently had a child born diagnosed. And I just, I watch them share their stories and I just feel so connected because I'm like, gosh, that is exactly how I felt. That is exactly what we went through. And I shouldn't say exactly because it's it's never exactly, but I just feel so much for them because it's like looking back in a mirror, how difficult that time was. And we needed support and they need support too. Amen. We all rise by lifting others. I love that saying. Yeah. And it's so true. <laughs> 
Okay, well, Alyssa, do you have anything else that you want to leave with our friends listening? Or do you have any goals that you have set this year? Or do you have anything that you're looking forward to? I mean, as far as goals, I'm not, I've never really necessarily been like a goal setting person when it comes to like New Year's and stuff. However, I think my kind of continuous goal is is to keep showing up and whatever that looks like for me at the time. I think if I continue to make sure that I'm showing up in whatever it is I need, whether it's taking a couple of days off Instagram and not sharing or reaching out to the community, just making sure that I am also filling my cup too, because I know that if I'm not taking care of myself and my needs, I'm not able to do it for my children or anyone else. And the best way for me to do that is honesty. And that's honesty with myself and how I'm feeling. That's honesty with other people, how I'm feeling and just being able to share and say things are hard right now, because I don't think that's always very easy for us to do that. That's a practice. I think sometimes we want to show that we're doing better or things are good or we've made it through something and we're thriving. And sometimes thriving is just being honest and saying this sucks and this is so hard and I'm drowning. Like I am drowning right now because some days I do feel like that and then other days I feel better. So I guess just my goal for myself is to to stay authentic to myself and my family about where we're at and keep showing up, keep learning. Thanks, Alyssa. I love that so much. Uh, Same. I'm going to go with same for you because I'm not a goal setter either. But yes to all of that. I would preach that at the mountaintops. Alyssa, I love you so much and your family. Thank you for being on the show. I know that so many families are probably going to be messaging you after this. So thanks for being my guest and being authentic. Thank you, Effie, for having me. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, Please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 ha!